For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in, like, you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking, I might feel some pain at some point. But with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet starting at $19.99 per month offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning into the three questions. And I am really, really excited about this one. I mean, the rest of them are, are duds. Pretty much everyone I've talked to from this point on has been a fucking snooze. So I am very excited to talk to David Sedaris is here, one of the funniest people on earth, somebody I've known for a very long time, but I have not seen you because you've been gallivanting. I think you were the well. No, I guess we left we left New York at around the same time. Yes, but you came to Los Angeles, and I moved to France, and yeah. then moved to England, and then yeah, we just haven't seen each other yeah, forever. Yeah. Did you live in Tokyo for any? Did you live in Tokyo for? No, an we went for three months. Yeah, but we didn't. That's not quite living. Mm -hmm. And are you? And, and are you coming back? I just talked to Hugh, your your husband and partner, boyfriend, you, boyfriend, um, and. Uh, he said, you guys are coming back to New York, sort of. Yeah, we got a place in New York, and so yeah. we're spending the winter there. Yeah. We're just seeing. It's it's odd to go back after being gone for so long. It yeah. just feels so different. I was in a car the other day going to the airport, and I didn't – it was a really long time until I passed a store you can't find in a mall. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Saw anything that was original yep. in any way. It's sad. It is sad, but it's it's still – we were just talking, my son's at school, his freshman year in New York City, and he has been saying, it's not the same as when you and mom lived here. It's all corporate now, and it's all Wall Street, and, and I guess it's kind of true, but it's still better than oh, most yeah. places. I mean, it's still, it's, you know, I, I go back, and it still definitely has the vibrancy and the sort of stimulation level that's elevated that I like uh, and that I get back into. When I've had to stay there for any amount of time, I feel like I could absolutely go back there. We we used to live in Soho, and so when we went back, we got an apartment on the Upper East Side, and it's not a place I ever would have thought I wanted to be on the why Upper did, East Side. Why did you do that? Uh, about a year ago. No, but I mean, why did you choose the Upper East Side? I just... Because it's not it's not hip in any way. Yeah, yeah. And but it also feels like the the there are still you know there's lots of butcher shops and lots of there's nothing you like when we had to get, meet with a the co-op board they boasted they said you know there's not a restaurant on Third Avenue from like 59th Street to 73rd. He said you're never going to hear 
anybody coming out of a restaurant at night. It's quiet. <laughs> and I love that they boasted about that. And, uh, uh, and I actually really like it. Yeah. That's great. I'm glad. I mean, I'm excited to have you guys, uh, back here. Are you, I mean, do you have qualms about le- leaving your expat life behind or? No, we didn't quite leave it behind. Yeah. You know? Um, I mean, we still live in England yeah. as well. I would, I would like to, you know, it is, you're with somebody, uh, I, I would like to move to Germany. Uh-huh. And so I go to Germany a lot for book mm-hmm. tours and stuff. And so I say every night, I say I'd like to move to Germany, and but I don't, I'm tired of filling out paperwork. So I want you, the German government to just give me right. two passports. <laughs> and I don't see why they, I guess that's exactly what white privilege is, isn't it? Like, just, just give me the passports. I don't, hey, come on. Yeah, I don't want to fill Germany. out any paper. I can, it's, it's, it's honestly in their interest. But I don't know that Hugh would, I don't know. He says he wouldn't do it. What is it you like about Germany? I like that people, as as I get older, I like places where people follow the rules. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. But I think we tend to follow the rules that we believe in, Mm -hmm. right? Like in Tokyo, people follow the rules. But oh, yeah. in Tokyo, you go to Tokyo and it's two o'clock in the morning and it's really cold and you're, you, and there's no cars coming and you want to cross the street, but Japanese people are going to wait until the light changes. Right. They're not going to do it. And then you think, well, this is just crazy. And so you do it. And the looks that they give you are probably, you know, probably the looks you deserve. But here you are, you're deciding, okay, this rule I believe in. Yeah. And this one, not so much. Yeah. In Japan, anyway, it's either you follow the rule, or you. Well, there's not really a part. There's really not another option. Mm-hmm. You just do it. Um, and there's something, as I get older, something about that that yeah. I like. But I still don't want to follow the ones that I think are just bullshit. Yeah, I think. Well, honestly, I think that the. I mean, what occurs to me in you saying that is, it's a it's a question of density. There's so many people that I think that there's that. It probably, and I mean, having been to Tokyo, it feels like you're on the edge of chaos at all times, uh, to the point where, you know, there are people, they have a, a job is shoving people into train cars to make sure mm-hmm. that everyone fits, like, and everyone goes along with that. That's not, that's all just part of the social contract, not like rude. And I think, like, because I, in my old neighborhood, there was a, a light that I would want to turn left on and it's a very, there's no one around. And this is the same thing from growing up in the country. If there's a traffic light and nobody's around, eh, you know, go through the red light. You look, you see, there's no, it's uh, first of all, it was Illinois and it was all flat. So you could see for miles, go ahead and blow through that. But I think that because there's no one else around, I think that, so maybe it's, maybe that's one reason why, you know, We've got a more space. We don't. We don't have people so much on top of us that we can. But what to me? What what's kind of nice about Japan though is you're right. There are people at rush hour who shove you into the train, but they're wearing white gloves. Yes, and that's nice. <laughs> it is nice. It is nice. It's for everyone's benefit. Yeah, it makes them seem like uh, <laughs> like butlers, like human butlers. All right. Well, you know, the, I don't know if you, how much you know about this show, but it's called the Three Questions, and it's just basically an excuse. For me to ask people prying questions about their past and, sure. and their future. Uh, and the first one is, is where do you come from? 
And you come from North Carolina. I was born in Binghamton, New York, oh, which right. is a depressed area in western New York State. Yeah. And uh, and it's interesting. Do you uh, remember? Were you there for a long time, or we? I was in the. I left at the end of second grade. Okay. But and we moved to Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh huh. And when we moved to Raleigh, everybody was southern, mm-hmm. right? But then IBM, we transferred with IBM, and then Westinghouse moved people there too, and so they built entire neighborhoods for Yankees. Oh wow! But it was a lot. Of, there was a lot of conflict um, between. I mean, I've got beat up for being a Yankee. Yeah. Which you, you know, growing up, you don't even. That word doesn't even mean anything. Right. But when you win the war, you don't think about it anymore, <laughs> right? But they were so. And I you're not even that aware of the war, you know. I, you no. know, yeah, it's like, yeah. It's, but you know, I was just thinking a while ago. My dad is 96 now. Wow. And when he was a boy, you could run into a Civil War veteran. Wow. You know. Yeah, so I yeah, guess it wasn't. I mean, we seem really removed from it now, right. but in like 1963. You know, we were, you know, closer to it. Yeah. And and so I grew up in Raleigh, but I go back to Raleigh and I don't feel anything. Mm. Nothing. And part of it is I never learned to drive a car. So I I don't, you know, I don't go to the places where I used to live. I don't, mm-hmm. you know, I just go to my dad's, like, home. Like, yeah, That's yeah. the only place that I go to. But I go back to Binghamton, North Carolina, and I feel... Completely, York, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, Binghamton, yeah. New York, and I feel completely at home. Oh, really? But that, that isn't nothing has changed there. Ah, uh-huh. because and it's has a lower population now than it did when I left. Mm. My dad's hometown, Cortland. There's a there's a Denny's there now, but that's it. Yeah. But I go back and I feel, I don't know. I feel like I I could live here, mm-hmm. or I feel. Like a, uh, I don't know, kinship with the people who I see on the street. Yeah, but yeah. It's interesting. I don't feel that in Raleigh, North Carolina. Did you feel a part of Raleigh when you were there, or did it always kind of feel like you were, you know, uh, for you a little while? Go? I felt, you know, when I was in my early twenties. Yeah. Because uh, I started doing things with the art museum. You know, they uh-huh. invited me to, like, do performance pieces, and then I had, you know, some little shows, and mm-hmm. so I felt like part of a North Carolina, like, artist scene. But then, you know how it is, and then you're in the North Carolina art scene and you think, like, uh, you know, Iowa has an artist scene and Arkansas has an artist scene and there's really only one, you know? (laughs) Yeah, right, right. Yeah, you... you, I remember... uh, (laughs) <laughs> I worked in Auckland, New Zealand for a few months and I realized very quickly, you know, like there was a radio station that I list that I found that I really liked. It was kind of like an alternative radio station that played lots of different things. And within a week, I was sitting at a red light and was outside the studio of the radio station and I realized very quickly in Auckland, well yeah, you're going to see everything Auckland has to offer within a couple of weeks. And I think it's the same thing with with small art communities. You're going to know everybody pretty quickly and then that's it. You know that that room for expansion in the North Carolina art community probably Well, 
Also, I went to Auckland and we, I went to the art museum, uh-huh. and it's like, oh, here's New Zealand's Gauguin, here's New Zealand's <laughs> Matisse, here's yeah, New yeah. Zealand's right. Yeah. Um, can you do a New Zealand accent? I uh, yeah, I can do a little bit. I, I, I'm going to terrible. The, my favorite one was on my favorite thing about the because New Zealand. Versus Australia, it's even more kind of like this. It's like a whiny kind of uh, Australian, but like they say, fish and chups, fish and chups. Like, and my favorite thing I heard was a uh, an ad on the radio for a mattress store, and it opened with, "Are you sleeping on a bed? Bed? <laughs> a bed? Bed?" <laughs> Oh, you mean a bad bed? Yes, a bad bed. <laughs> and it was just so funny to me. It was a bad bed. I was there when Michael Jackson was arrested the first time, and the woman on the radio, she said, the question is, is Jack A. facing prison? <laughs> Jack A. facing prison. Is Jack A. facing prison? <laughs> Are you sleeping on a bad bed? That sounds great. <laughs> How, when were you there? Uh, I was there in 2008. Really? Yeah, I was there. Uh, it was it was a movie called uh, Aliens in the Attic. It was a, a kids movie, um, and it was it it fell right in the uh, writer's strike. And I had everything that I had, every iron in the fire cooled to an ice cold. And I was offered the part in this movie. And I'd, it was a thing like I'd read for it a couple months before. I knew that I'd done well. I could just, I read for the director. And I mean, and my part is nothing. I play like kind of the asshole uncle who's kind of like, uh, what time's dinner? That's like the extent of the acting for the whole thing. And... I kept asking, is this is this movie going to happen? Is this going to happen? Literally for a couple of months. And then they finally were like, well, they wanted you to come back. And I went back. And these the first thing the casting people said to me was, if you get this part, you will have to leave. And it was like Thursday. You'll have to leave Wednesday for New Zealand. And you may have to stay there for three months. And if you can't commit to that, then there's no point in even going on. And I was like... <laughs> I, I've been waiting to hear, you know, <laughs> fuck me, sorry, you know, sorry about this. And they said that, uh, yeah, we want you to read again because you just didn't nail it. You just didn't nail, like, what time's dinner? <laughs> so I, I, got, I booked it, and they paid me just, I was kind of like, oh, maybe they won't pay me enough and I won't have to do this. Because, my you know, this is, my daughter was three, my son was eight, and I was going to have to go to, it's, it's not easy. It's not Vancouver. It's not like you can fly home on the weekends. It's 13 hours and ridiculously expensive to fly there and back. And, uh, but they paid me just enough where I would be, it would have been, I would have been hurting my family if I hadn't taken the job. But it was during the writer's strike and the director and the producer were doing rewrites every day of the professionally written script that was fine, you know, it wasn't great, but it's like, you know, it's like the, the, the contractor isn't showing up. I guess I better put up a wall, you know, like, like the director and the producer were just making it 
worse and worse and worse every day with these, just this compulsion, like, well, in movies, you're always doing rewrites, so we better have some rewrites to show. And like, just, why don't you do with what the pro wrote? Um, <laughs> and it was, and I was there and it was really, it was, I loved it. And it was a very easy schedule for me because the gimmick of the movie was that they, there were these aliens that had mind control that only worked on adults. So the kids had to fight the aliens and protect us from the oh. aliens. And all the aliens are about 18 feet tall or 18 inches tall, little like, you know, kind of gremlin-y looking things. So all of the special effects were the kids. Like, they're, I, like there were literally scenes where you'd open a door and go like, what's going on in here, kids? And they'd be like, nothing. And then you shut the door and then there'd be all the special effects and the stunts and everything. So I had tons of time off um, and, <laughs> and worked with, it was me and Tim Meadows. And one of our first days there, we asked a, an, an assistant director, uh, hey, could you get us some weed for this? And she's like, oh yeah, no problem, mate. And the next day she brought in a coffee can full of weed for us to split. And I was like, oh, there's no way we're going to get through. I'm going to get through this. And I got through it just fine. Um, but yeah, so, and it was just really tough because I left for six weeks with a, you know, a, an eight-year-old and a three-year-old at home. And it was not, it was, if I had to do it over again, I would insist that everybody come with me because it was just too much of a strain. But I really did love it there and I'd love to go back. Um Getting a work visa for Austra for New Zealand, oh my god! Yeah, and you have to go in person. Yep. Like you can't you can't pay somebody to go and do it for you. Yeah, and, and you have to be at the embassy all day. Yeah, it's yeah. just such a. And so I just got back from Australia. Normally, I would go to New Zealand as well mm -hmm. and do shows, but I didn't because it was too much of a pain in the too ass. Too much of a pain yeah. in the ass. Yeah, and the, if I remember correctly, too, the taxes are really. Yeah, you want, you leave with nothing. Yeah, yeah, you're they're really punitive. So it was a, even though I mean, you know, it was all in all, it was you know, and actually the movie turned out to be okay. You know, like it's a pretty fun movie. And um, have you been to Tasmania? I never have. No, I've never been to Australia. Oh, yeah, because there's a man in Tasmania who opened his own museum, and in the gift shop of the museum, he sells soap that is molded from a vagina. And it looks, it's like a, it's, it's, it's not like a square. It's more like a rectangle shape, but the top of it is a vagina. Yeah. And it's soap. And uh, it's worth going just to buy that. <laughs> does, is it, does he say whose vagina it is or? No. Oh. And it comes in a really beautiful box. It's just a fantastic gift for anybody. Because you can use well, it. What's the theme of the museum? Is it a vagina museum? No, no. It's just his. I did to tell you the truth. I didn't even go. I had interviews and stuff, so I couldn't go. So the producer went, and she bought this soap, and she gave it to me. And I was like, "Damn it! I wish she'd given me like twenty bars of it." <laughs> right. That's a wonderful, you know, uh, Christmas gift. Just housewarming. But I gotta say, the service. You know, like when you went to a restaurant there. Just nobody seemed to care. Yeah, yeah. I mean, gee, just be sitting there forever. When I'm on my deathbed, what I'm going to want back is all the time that I spent saying, can I have the check? And then waiting <laughs> for the check. I mean, between France <laughs> and England yeah. and – because that's something to be said for tipping. 
Yeah. You know, they want you out of there. They want to turn the table yeah. over. But in a place where people don't tip, it's like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, I know. And well, then you so, said, they yeah, say, you need to live. Yeah. I'd like to be living. Yes, yes. But instead, I'm sitting here waiting for the check. Yeah. No, I'm I'm terrible at that. I'm also, I'm terrible about being, like, having my plate clean and then look up and everyone's, like, on their third bite. You know, <laughs> yeah. just like. Uh-huh. And it's just from growing up in a house with an older brother who you had to eat, you know. I mean, it's basic compulsiveness, too, but there was also, like, growing up in a family where you if, if you ordered pizza, you you better eat the pizza fast or you're not going to get enough pizza because it will just right. be devoured by everyone else. Um, but now it's really not – it's not a good look on a 53-year-old man to – have a clean plate and everyone else kind of enjoying their, com- you know, the conversation and, and then I'm ready for the check. Let's go. Let's get out of here. When I do a book signing, um, you know, I, I like signing books, Yeah. Right? but a lot of times then people are like, can we get a picture? And the problem is that then the camera doesn't work right or mm-hmm. something. And, and I just would rather just talk to somebody yeah. than get the picture. And so, and I don't like the way people take pictures now. Like, this must happen to you. You know, maybe you'll be somewhere and people just come up and take your picture like you're a statue. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't ask you if they can yeah, do yeah. it. And that just seems so rude to it me. It does. So they, they put up a sign that says no photos, right, mm-hmm. when I'm signing books. But I eat dinner while I'm signing books because otherwise I'm not going to get back to the hotel till midnight or 1 yeah, o'clock yeah. in the morning and then it'll be 2 o'clock by the time the food comes. And a woman said to me not long ago, she said, after standing in this line and watching you eat for 10 minutes, I can understand why you have that no photo sign. <laughs> nice. Because I eat like that too, like it's a contest. Right, right. And and I never let any food leave the table. Uh-huh. You know, if somebody, I say, are you finished with that? And I'll eat, you know, I'll finish what's on everybody else's plates. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was weird. Last night we went out to dinner and we just made that mistake and we got too many appetizers and mm-hmm. a lot of the appetizers involved bread. Mm-hmm. And then we also had a pasta course and a meat course. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time since I went to to um, Croatia in 2000 that I've let food leave the table. Ah. I was done in. It's just couldn't do it. Yeah. 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 I found too... Uh, I have been broken of my Midwesternness, which I, I I wish I could remember who said it, but somebody in I remember reading a, a story once where somebody pleaded with their father, who was there living in Michigan or something, that like overeating is not an act of heroism, uh, which in the Midwest it does tend to be that mm. way. You know, like you got you, you know, there's so many like look at my boy eat. You know, like, look at my boy who I'm, you know, I'm cursing with a lifetime of obesity. Look at him go. You know, he's eating three cheeseburgers and like as if that's a, a, a merit. And and I now go back and I cannot believe the Flintstone size portions that they still will serve you. I mean, there's, you know, there there's modernized places, but there's still the, the old stalwart Chicago kind of steakhouse places. It's enough food for three people. And, you know, I just, the notion of eating a rack of ribs, like a full rack of ribs, like now, no problem. And I mean, you know, like my brother would eat a rack and a half of ribs. Beyond five, I feel like, oh my God, 
I'm done. You know, it's just, ugh. But you used to power through, like, you know, literally one side of a pig. Just go right through it. See, we had six kids. Yeah. And so I always felt like that, too. Like, you got to get in there and you got to get seconds. Like, there's not going to be enough. Yeah. Right? And so I still, I don't know, I just grew up eating like that. Yeah. And I can't stop. And so I can't seem to eat less. Yeah. Right? So I just have to exercise more and more. Yeah, yeah. And, like, I'll exercise sometimes, like, for eight, ten hours a day. And I and I say exercise, but, like, walking. Yeah. Like, I'll go to the gym, but then I'll walk yeah. for eight hours a day. Uh, just to, because the furnace is, you know, you got, I got to. Yeah. Just, just to try to, to, to burn. Do you do anything while you're walking? I mean, are you just walking around town and circles? I listen to podcasts and I listen to books and I listen to, uh, and I pick up trash. Yeah. You know, and I, um, I mean, we're in the country most of the time, so it's pleasant to be walking Do your neighbors recognize your, your trash picking up? I mean, I've read about it and you've, you've written about it. I get stopped a lot. Yeah. Because I have a show on the BBC. Uh-huh. And so people know me from that. Yeah. So they'll say, oh, are you the bloke? Are you the chap? Are you the person who, um, you know, who picks up trash? And and it's nice, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's nothing. Do they bad. hand you like a McDonald's bag of garbage out of their car? Like, no, but this- it's your, <laughs> it's your department. This woman, she got, had her son get out of the car because it was a- plastic bottle that oil had come in uh-huh. and she had him get out of the car and kick it to the curb because she didn't want to run over it and then she saw me and she said him give it to him give it to the bin man and so <laughs> the kid gave it to me and I just looked at him with dead eyes my eyes were just dead because that's her solution was just to kick it to yeah the, you know that's her street right she doesn't yeah. care that it's on her street you know how people are yeah it ends at their yard you know? And you're the equivalent to a curb. Yeah. You know, like you're out of the way, but actually even a little better than out of the way. Yeah. Because, yeah, he's into that, picking up garbage. But somebody drove by one time and said, bin man. And he stuck his head out the window and his face was like a fist and it was red and he was just enraged. <laughs> bin man. Like they're calling someone a garbage man. <laughs> I didn't uh, understand that. Uh. <laughs> Oh, my God. It's like heart surgeon. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Orthodontist. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network. So whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at tmobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at tmobile.com. Legend has it, underneath the NJM insurance offices lies a mysterious room of long-forgotten moldy mascot memorabilia, often pitched by ad agencies, always rejected by NJM. Is it real? We may never know. But what is real is NJM's dedication to doing what's right for their customers. Astoundingly, they're proud to put policyholders first. No jingles or mascots, just great insurance. Learn more at njm.com.
McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the hotter, juicier, classic burgers. Mr. Hamburglar. Bravo, bravo. He said, of all the McDonald's burgers I've ever hamburgled, these are the hottest, juiciest, and tastiest. Bravo. Hurry in and enjoy one of our 350 bundles, like a daily double and small fries for a limited time. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any of the offer comparison of prior classic burgers. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Can't you tell my loves are growing? Well, now, you have written uh, fairly extensively about you had compulsive tendencies when you were a kid. Yeah. And so was the eating part of that? And, and do you want to talk about that a little bit for anyone that doesn't know about? Oh, yeah. I mean, as a kid, I mean, you know, there were six kids in my family, and so no one got, you couldn't afford to give somebody a lot of attention. Yeah, so, yeah. I didn't, my parents never took me to a doctor or anything like that, but yeah, I mean, it was obsessive compulsive disorder. And I think as I got older, maybe I learned how to make it, to to, to use it for the good, mm-hmm. right? So like if I have to do everything at exactly the same time every day, yeah, right? Instead of doing something like destructive, what if I were to sit down and write every time? You know, so that's what I've done ever since I started writing, yeah. you know, when I was 20. Um, but like when we moved to England, then the trash thing became that. You know, it, it morphs and it changes and you can't yeah. see what's ahead of you. Like maybe something will replace the garbage collecting at mm-hmm. some point. But as it is now, I can't pass by a piece of garbage, I can't pass it by. I yeah. can't walk by it. Um, and, uh, but again, so to, but to clean it up, you know, it makes the world a better place. You know, right. it's it's not. It could be worse. Right. It's not. Know? Well, I mean, when you were a kid, you did compulsive like activities, repetitive yeah. activities, yeah, yeah. or licking things. Well, it got to be. It got to be really oppressive. You know, when yeah. you had to. You know, you'd go to bed and you'd say, oh, no, I have to go touch the light bulb in the refrigerator. And you go up and you go upstairs and you touch the light bulb. And it's like, I didn't touch it in the right place. So you go back upstairs and oh. it's in the right place. And then it's like, okay, I have to, you know, go to the uh, go to the bathroom and I have, to, I have to touch my tongue, you know, to the, you know, to the handle of the toilet. And I have to, and then I, no, I didn't do it right. And then I have to go back. So I was just exhausted, yeah, you know, yeah. from all that. And I guess now you just give a kid some medication, but, and I'm not upset, you know, I'm not sad about it. But like when you've got six kids, you can't. Are people aware that this is happening? Like, are your siblings or? Oh yeah, my siblings were really aware, and yeah. then teachers would say things to my to my mother, yeah. and you know how it is. Like, I saw a kid in the airport, and he was violently shaking his head, like just violently jerking his head, and that's something I did for a long time. Mm. And his father said, "Cut it out!" And I just wanted. <laughs> I normally would never talk like this, you know. But I just wanted to go to that kid and just, and it sounds so queer. I just to hug that child yeah, or yeah. something, or just say like, "Oh man, I was exactly where you were," and I, you know, it really is. It really is going to get better. It's just, you know, it's just really bad, like yeah. right now. But when I, I, I find it exciting when I see somebody who has Tourette's or who has a some kind of a tick, and when I get to interact with them, it's mm-hmm. almost like seeing a celebrity to me. When I see them in action, 
and then because of a kinship that you feel, or or you're just witnessing something. And I want, and I just want to say something beautiful, um, something untamed. Mm-hmm. You know, like maybe it's like seeing a wild horse or something like mm-hmm. that. There's just something beautiful and untamed about it. Yeah. I mean, there are extremes. You yes. know, I, I saw somebody in London, and and I think their son was autistic on some level. You know, where the child was, you know, like eight years old and refusing to be moved and screaming, mm-hmm. and I don't know how you deal with that. You know, I mean, as a parent, that's and you've got people watching, and you've got that's got to be hard. But I, I was never, I was never that yeah. child. Yeah, you know? yeah. And it was, it was. Uh, you know, like it could, it could just be exhausting. Yeah, that, that was the. And then you know, you know, you you always think that other people don't notice. Yeah, what it is that you're doing, and uh, like I can't perform if there's a plexiglass podium, because then I have to touch my dick. I have to touch my dick like <laughs> constantly, and not cup it, but you know, like kind of just, just tap it. T- yeah. And then sometimes I go through the pocket and then sometimes, and I think, oh, no one can tell. And Amy, my sister Amy was in the audience. She said, what was going on with your dick? And so now if it's a plexiglass podium, <laughs> they cover it with a cloth and tape the cloth down. So. Well, now, if you if it was mahogany, would you be touching your dick? Nope, or? not a bit. Really? Wow. Yeah, only if it can be seen. Yeah, yeah. Then it's just something I have to, absolutely have to do. Sure, right. I mean, you're putting on a show. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> they're gonna give, they're gonna give you like a little stage to perform on, you know, a little booth. <laughs> now, do you? I don't know what. Do they have any idea? Like, does science know what causes OCD, or or is it just it's just a sort of a anomaly that just happens to happen? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and and do you feel now like with the with the picking up of trash? Does it? bother you that it still is there does it like do you is it something where you're picking up trash and then all of a sudden you realize oh no it's this again you know that where, where you you might start like you said you don't know what the new behavior might be but you start the behavior and then all of a sudden you realize oh this is serving that purpose uh yeah but like we we recently hired a housekeeper we never had one mm-hmm. before but the house that we live in in England is 450 years old. Mm-hmm. And so you, and it's a farmhouse and it's got beams in every room. Mm. And you just, it's a full-time job just keeping up with the spiders and the webs. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you and can't I imagine turn the your dust back. too. Yeah. Yeah. But we hired a housekeeper and she has OCD and she should charge double because wow. that's exactly what you want. Right. And so sometimes the, our council, our local government, will send people out to clean the roadside. They're worthless. Mm. Because if I see like a, a, a can deep into a briar thicket, I'm not leaving that can there. Mm-hmm. I can't. Mm-hmm. Or I wouldn't have done my job. Right. So I have to get everything. Everything. So um, that's who you want. Mm-hmm. Do you have that same level of compulsive perfection in your writing? Mm, I mean, I don't think I've ever published anything that I thought wasn't. I mean, I always believe in it when mm-hmm. I turn it in. Like I would never said, eh, that's good enough. Right. 
But I mean, the process isn't one where you're like, oh my God, this isn't good enough. And it, and it's torture to you to get it to the place where it's right. No, I'm, I'm not, uh, no, uh, like I have a reading in Vancouver Mm -hmm. the night after after tomorrow and I have three new things to read. Mm. And I don't know that I'll read all three that night. But I'll read something and then I go back to the room and rewrite it and then try it out and then rewrite it and try it out and rewrite it. It's interesting. Um, you learn so much that way. And yeah. then, of course, there are things that work on the page that wouldn't necessarily work out loud. Mm-hmm. And things, uh, you know, the audience, uh, like I had this, somebody gave me uh, this woman gave me $50 bail. She said I was at a church event and uh, we had a speaker and he gave everyone a $50 bill and told us we had to give it out to a poor person by 315. She said it corresponds with the Bible verse, you know, mm. John 315 or 215, something like that. Uh, and she said, I'm not going to be around any poor people. Would you do this for me? And I couldn't think of anything I'd rather do, right? But so... I How long ago was this? Uh, last summer. Oh, okay. And so then I, t- I talked about it at a book signing, and then somebody came and gave me $100 to give away. And then somebody gave me another, you know, the next night someone said, oh, here's another $50 to give away. And so I wrote an essay about it. Mm-hmm. But I noticed when I read the essay that if I said I saw a black woman working at McDonald's, the audience would like tense up mm-hmm. because I said black. Yes. And and it wouldn't have mattered if I said I saw an African-American woman. The audience gets so freaked out by any mention of race. Yes. Whatsoever. Yes. And it seemed pertinent to me, right? Because sometimes if you're giving money away, it I don't know, it's just pertinent. It adds another level of weirdness to it, mm-hmm. right? Um, but then the audience got so tense over the whole thing that I had just get rid of all that. And then mm. it worked fine. Yeah, yeah. But, um, and I was reading uh, something in England a couple of years ago and my sister Lisa was exposed to, uh, and when she was 12 years old, my dad was driving her to this church event and this black man by the side of the road exposed themselves, uh, exposed himself to them, right? And my dad turned the car around so they could see it again, right? <laughs> and I read that and this woman in England said, oh why God. did you say he was black? And I said, because it was 1967 in the American South. Yes. And I'm not saying that it's fair, but for a black man to expose himself to a white girl would have gotten him into more trouble mm-hmm. than doing it. And it makes my father's reaction all the more surprising. Yes. And she said, well, when you say someone's black, are we, are we supposed to assume everyone else is white? And I said, yeah, it's the writer's world. You know, if it's a black author and he says this white lady came to the door... That's his world mm-hmm. that he's created. It's not racist to point out somebody's race when it's pertinent. Yeah. But the audience gets so – and it's, you know, it's a 98% white audience. Mm-hmm. And they freak out. They just – and I there's certain things and I always feel like I insist that I can write about. Like I insist there's a way to write about this. But that's just – that's – that's where I'm just having to throw in the towel. I, I, you know, especially because everything's about race now. Mm-hmm. But, but if, if you try to have an honest conversation about it, 
then it all goes to hell. Yeah. So it's just like fake honest talk about it. Right. And everybody speaking with this fake, reading their script. Yeah. You know, that's been approved of. Yeah. And it's just a really hard thing to talk about. It's, I, well, I mean, the, the, for me, and, you know, from doing a comedy show four days a week, I mean, we definitely encounter, there are subjects such as race, frequently different, you know, religion or, or sexual preference or gender identity where that everyone is like, just don't even mention it, please. Yeah. Cause it's uncomfortable and if we laugh at it, we don't know if we're being bad. Right. Like if you, we trust you to craft a joke and we trust you to, we know your work. We know that you're not a hateful bigot. Um, so we do trust you. But if you write a joke about that and I am not aware that right. I'm not supposed to laugh at it, you will fuck me over because then right. I will be doing something bigoted and I just really right. was just here to enjoy your comedy. And I, I do understand it. I do understand it because there's tons of nuance and it is situational. And there is like, like this woman saying to you that about that, you know, there's, <laughs> there, you know, there, cause there is a difference. I was, I was eavesdropping on a conversation between, uh, Somebody, somebody, it was at, it was at Warner Brothers and I was with an African-American actor, uh, an Asian actor and me talking to somebody that worked there who was talking about, we were talking about credit cards being fraudulently used. And this guy was talking about, he goes, oh, it happened to us a couple of times. One time it was this black lady down in South Central. She apparently was getting all these credit cards and she was cheating people. And then another time it's this Chinese lady out somewhere, you know, like, and I'm standing there with an African-American and, and an Asian person. And I said to the, at, when he was done telling this story, I was like, man, it was so important to know what, what, color everybody was and what national you know what what race everybody was and he just laughed and kind of shrugged it off but it was in that situation it was like yeah buddy come on look like have and th this was definitely insensitive this was not like this he was not the guy telling the story was not trying to you know battle social norms and break down barriers he was just a kind of a racist and and it is situational. It is like, yeah, in in the story you're telling about the exposure on the side of the road, yeah, the, the person's race is definitely a big aspect of what happened. And, you know. Well, it was a white woman who said, why did you have to say that? Yeah. You know, and so she was so up. And, and anyway, I thought my explanation was, because it's true, it's the writer's world. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's always been the case. Yeah. And it's not... Um, it's hard. It, it is hard, though, because we're trying to make a better world. We're trying to deal with race, and and it's so complicated, and there's so many pitfalls, you know? Well, I wrote once an essay. My parents were landlords, and they had these tenants. And my father... These tenants sued my parents, right? And 
and there was this really kind of aggressive guy that my dad rented to, right? And 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 it was a story about seeing my father, um, a guy threatening to hit my father, and mm-hmm. so I thought there was going to be a fist fight between my dad and this guy. And some people walked out, and they said to the person in the lobby, "The people in the theater are laughing at all the wrong parts." And it's like. Who, but it's what you're talking about. People yeah, yeah. thinking, if I laugh, like because then they're thrown into conflict because it's not a white character, right? Yeah. So if they don't like this person, does that make them a racist? Yeah, yeah. But if you don't like a bad person, that doesn't make you a racist. It's just a bad person. Yeah, right? yeah. But again, it's what you said. You can feel the audience. You can feel that turmoil. Mm-hmm. And also what you said, which is really true is what that really translates to is we came here to have a good time and don't make us don't make us don't make us feel that yeah or don't make right, us right. don't you know, test me yeah don't test my wokeness yeah well i i mean i i i it i i i, I i'm loath to be one of those comedians, it's like, why can't I say whatever I want all the time? Because most of the time, <laughs> most of the time, they're white guys that are just really kind of pissed off that they're, because they look at their white comedy heroes of a, of a you know, a, of, the, of a golden age of white maleness, and they think those guys could get away with whatever they wanted, which included like really unsavory, horrible things you know, throughout their life. And they're kind of like, how come I don't get to do that? And and it's just, to me, it's the most boring brand of comedy that's out there right now. It's just white guy being like, nah, I missed the boat on white guys getting to do whatever the fuck they wanted. But do you, like, I feel like I don't know anything about comedy. Like, I don't know anything about comedians. Like, if you named... 10 stand-up comedians who are popular right now. I don't think I would know any of them. Like, yeah. I just don't, I don't know that much about that world. Yeah. Every now and then I'll go on YouTube and I'll see, you know, someone in front of a brick wall and I'll listen for a few minutes. Um, and I think that must be a really, really hard life. It's um, not my thing, you know. It never was. It was, I mean, like with, with you know, Amy, your sister, I think she's in the same boat and and she's been on this show and the key for everything for her was collaboration. And that's the same with me. I say basically, because I tried to do stand-up because it's available to me as, and, and in many people in my similar situation, guys of my age, character actors, comedy people, improv people, one of the ways they can make money is like, I'll just do a stand-up act. I've been in some movies and I they can put my name on a marquee and I can go do 45 minutes in Omaha and make some money and bring it back home. So I always kind of had that in mind. And then I just realized I don't like this. I don't like being up here alone. I don't like saying the same thing over and over. Like that's sort of the goal is to really just keep saying the same thing over and over with like minor adjustments right. until... Like, now I've really got it to where I can really, truly say the same thing over and over. And that's just, there's no interest to me in that. 
I liked how you said I can make some money and bring it home. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> like I don't have to spend it all in Omaha. I can, <laughs> I can bring it home. Well, I, I mean, my the the significance is like, uh, yeah, I'm not going to Omaha for the sights. I'm going there to stand in a dark room and and you know got to make a living. I couldn't do it, you know, stand yeah. up. I couldn't. But it's interesting because well, I, why do you think there's a difference between what you do and and stand up? A piece of paper makes all the difference. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, all the difference in the world. Uh, often, I invite people to open for me, uh-huh. right? And usually, it's a writer. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been in situations <clears throat> where I'm um, signing books and I meet somebody and and we get to talking and it turns out that they write. And maybe I just I get an idea and I think, gosh, I bet this person's a good writer. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, why don't you open for me? You know, I'm going to be, you know, a couple hundred miles from here, three weeks from now, or I'm coming back in six months. And why don't you write something that's like seven minutes long? And and it's uh, it's nice to give people a, a chance. And the yeah. audience, you know, if I explain to the audience that it's a young person, you know, you've got to, <clears throat> you have to be generous towards sure. a young person who's drawing out. Um and a couple of times I've made like a big mistake and it's someone's gone on too long or someone's, you know, but usually it works out fine. Uh, but I mean, I invited a stand-up comedian to, to open for me. I was at UCLA mm-hmm. and I met him in Canada and he was with his mom and I really liked him. And I said, oh, why don't you? And it was just interesting because he was like, how's everybody doing tonight? You know, and he had the microphone and was yeah, prowling yeah. the stage. And, and I'm just not used to that energy on yeah. stage. Like, I don't have that. You know, I would never come out and ask the audience a question. Like, I can't hear you. Like, what is this out of the room thing? <laughs> Are you ready to listen? Yeah. yeah. I, and every now and then I'll be introduced by somebody who does that. And uh-huh. I just want to hose down the stage before yeah. I go out. I just don't like that energy in the in the room. Yeah. I have always, uh, I when given a choice, when I have to, like, go out on stage I always ask for no introduction I like to just mm. just because uh, A I don't want to hear what somebody that I don't know has to say about me not that I'll be offended but if if it's because if it's too laudatory it makes my skin crawl so I'd rather just mm. st- uh, you know on the Conan show every day when I come out to do the start the announcement where you know it's like it's the last 30 seconds before the show starts and we had a warm-up guy that used to, he started, the when we tr- had a new warm-up guy, he, the first day, like, here he comes, Andy, and I just, I said, no, 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 do not, do not say my name, just let me, just let me step out on the stage, I don't need that. Sometimes, if I'm, I always sign books before a show and after, because mm-hmm. I like to see who's in the audience, and this yeah. is a good way to, to do it. In the lobby, usually? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but if I meet a teenager, I'll say, if I pay you $20, will you introduce me? Oh, wow. And then I say, don't tell your parents. Cause then their parents are sitting down and they're like, you know, where's Chastity? And then Chastity walks on stage and sometimes they're backstage and they're talking like, you know, they're so confident and they're in the drama club at school and then it's time to go on and they're, and they're just air in pain. Right. You know? And then we say, oh, you can talk about. You know, if you have anything you want to promote, go ahead and do it. But all you have to do is say, uh, here's David Sedaris. Like, that's all you have to say. And yeah. anything else you want to do, you are free to do. Right. And it's just, it's nice to have that energy backstage. Somebody who 
hasn't been in front of 2,000 people and they're going to go out there. And I guess what you're always hoping for is the moment that they, they, that they, they, they put the electricity into Frankenstein. You know, mm-hmm. that it's going to be an awakening in yeah. a young person. And they're like, must have this attention every day. <laughs> but it's fun to, but usually NPR people, they get out there and they say, I'm not David Sedaris. Mm. And I'm like, ugh. And I mm. don't even want to hear what comes after, yeah, yeah, yeah. after that. Yeah. It's good, though, that you're uh, paying teens to do a task that they should keep secret from their parents. Yeah, that seems seems like a good pattern to set. Well, you know, I'm so honored that a teenager would come to hear, and I'm 63 now, Uh you know, would come to hear a man their grandfather's age read out loud. I'm just so honored that they came. Yeah. um, That I, I don't know, I just, and it's why I always bring gifts for teenagers too. And it's not much, but it's something. I've never let a teenager leave the table without That's a nice. gift. That's really nice. Now, is that, why do you think that, like, why do you think that is? Do you feel, are you giving your teen self a gift? Are you, or is it just, no, it's just because, and is it something that started when you started to get older? No, it started pretty much when I started going on tour. Yeah. And I think because you could give them a bottle of shampoo from your hotel and they don't stay in hotels. So mm. to them, it's something where to yeah. you, it doesn't really, you know, it's no big deal. Yeah. And then I have a lot of just things in my life. And then sometimes somebody will give me something, you know, at a reading. And, you know, maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's a snow globe or something. And I don't. You're going to cut I don't, that I don't mean to sound like a, but I, I have a Picasso painting. Like, I don't <laughs> I don't really want so a snow fuck globe. your snow globe. <laughs> so, but I'll, I'll write them a thank you letter and say thank you so much. And, yeah. You know, but then I'll give the snow globe to a teenager. Yeah. You know, not that night. I'll take it to another city right. and give it to a Well, and I should hope, teenager. too, that someone would appreciate the fact that the joy is being passed on as opposed to, you know, you just having a house full of junk that people have given you. Um, it's, Do people give you a lot of drawings of yourself that they've done of you? Not not for a long time. I mean, they do do that, and they sort of give them more to the show. And mm. there is there is sort of fan art uh, that I have a you know it's a you have a complicated relationship. I think anybody in the public eye does with with people's you know idea of them. And it usually it's it, it was I worked on a movie once where. I was still doing the Conan show and I had to leave. And so they there was they were shooting me out as a wedding scene and they wanted to get a body double for me because they were just going to shoot me from behind. So the first day they brought basically like football players and they had Polaroids of football. They took Polaroids of them with me and next to me. And I was like, oh, this is nice. And then they came back and they're like, those guys weren't so great. And then they just brought fat guys. You know, <laughs> the next day it was like, eh, the football players aren't exactly right. Let's just get some guys that, you know, could have been football players if they put down the fork. And that, it, to me, that's the difference in the fan art. It's either kind of like, wow, I look good there. Or like, oh, my God, do I really have eight chins? It's always so depressing. Yeah. <laughs> it's always, always so depressing. But people put a lot of work into mm-hmm. it. And then you're like, oh, my God, thank you so much. Yeah. 
<laughs> oh no, is that what I look like? I know, I know. <laughs> it's us. Do you are, are you weirded out by the fact that somebody thinks that much about you? To sit down and paint a painting of you? Uh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't you know, I'm I'm flattered. I'm flattered. You know, I'm not flattered by the picture, but I'm flattered uh you know that they would put the time yeah, into yeah. it. Now, is there anybody that you would paint a picture of, like that you're a fan of? That I wouldn't. Yeah, but there are plenty of people I'm a fan of, but I wouldn't paint a picture of. Them. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know that. Uh, I don't know that. I. I don't know what I would say to that person. Yeah. You know? I because I feel autograph culture. Like I just feel like. There's nobody, the only, whenever I've asked for an autograph, it's been for somebody right. else. It's been like a baseball player for my brother or something like that. I, but I, I don't, and I, I, I think, well, am I just, you know, I'm just sort of, I've been around so many famous people because of the nature of my job that I don't care, but I really do feel like, no, separate from that, if I had, if I had just, you know, stayed in Chicago and wrote ad copy, I don't think that I would want, you know, I don't think that I would have, having met David Bowie, like I would have say, hey, David Bowie, will you sign something for me? Because it, I don't understand what that means. I don't understand, like when people say, can we get a picture together? I don't I don't understand that. I yeah. don't understand what it's supposed to mean. Um, and so I don't... <clears throat> Yeah, I just don't get it. I don't. So what you put it somewhere like on Instagram or something, and it's supposed to. I don't know what it means. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess like that I can understand more because that is like a visual representation of the memory, like of actually meeting someone. But just a name or something, I just it's it's weird to me, and I I don't know that. Uh, well, usually if somebody comes up, and this doesn't happen to me much at all, you know, but someone will say, can we get a picture? I'll say, oh, let me draw you a picture. You know, we'll just sit here and talk while I draw a picture of you and I talking together. Yeah. You know? I mean, I'd prefer that. Oh, I would prefer that. In picture. A, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, Conan does doodles of himself for people. Uh, <laughs> but, he's, you know, it's like something he's done well. It predated him being on television in drawing little doodles of himself in various, it's, you know, <laughs> in many ways he's exactly the same person he's always been. So um, now when you, uh, at what point in your youth do you realize you want to do something creative for a living? Uh, when I was in junior high school, uh-huh. I started by tracing cartoons out of National Lampoon. Mm-hmm. And then I tried to draw those pictures. I've never been talent, terribly talented that way, like mm-hmm. drawing and painting. But I wanted to be a visual artist. And that's what I... Uh, and then I started writing when I was 20. And then the writing gradually took over. Took over. Yeah. And you went to the Art Institute of Chicago, correct? Yeah. Now, and you went there intending to be a visual artist of some kind. Yeah, I went for painting and sculpture. Yeah. But then, you know, and it was a good place for me to go because I looked around and I saw some people and I thought, <clears throat> I thought they're always going to be better than me. They have something I don't. 
And and the thing that they have is going to mean that they're going to change and they're going to grow. And I'm never going to, mm-hmm. you know, because I tended to make the same thing over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and I, I don't know, I get, I guess I just, you know, I, I, I realized I, I would go to a museum and I would think I'd like to own that. I'd like to own that. And that's where my interest ended. I just uh. wanted to own it. And where was I would read something, and I would I would be I would just be so moved by what I read, and it wasn't like I wanted to write that. I was just I just wanted to read it again, and I just wanted to to like soak it in it, and I just wanted to uh, I I just lived for that. You know, I read everything I could get my hands on, and I um, and From not an age. No, no, no. I started like when I was twenty. When I yeah. started to write, I started to read, and. You know, and eventually that kind of took over and became uh, all I cared about. Yeah. Did you drop out of school when you started writing or did you continue and get your I degree? dropped out of school. I, I mean, I went to college for a year when I was 18 and then I went to Kent State for half a year and then oh. I dropped out. And then I went back when I went to the Art Institute when I was, I went when I was 27. I see. Oh, wow. And, uh... And but at that point, were you studying visual art or? I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. At twenty-seven, even though you'd been mm-hmm. writing, oh wow! And did was there a reason? I uh, mean, I mean, it's what got enrichment? me into school. Yeah, and I still thought I would do it, but then I started taking. I took like I think I took like three writing classes. And they have those at the art institute. Yeah, and now oh, wow. you can major in it. Oh wow! But at the time, you had to take a certain number of English classes, mm-hmm. and. So creative writing was a class. And the teachers that they had there, like Jim McManus and Susan Wheeler was there when I first moved there, but um, uh, they had so much to give and they didn't really have anybody who necessarily wanted it, you Mm -hmm. know? And I did. And so it was like having my own private teachers. It was perfect. Wow. Because they, like I said, they had so much to give. And and let's say at Iowa Writers Workshop, you've got a lot to give. And you've got 60 people who are like fighting each other to get right. it. And here you've got a classroom and you've got 10 people with their heads down on their desk. And you've got one person who's like, you know, Give it to me, yeah. he's going to read everything that you mentioned in class. Yeah. And who is going to, you know, not, you know, if you have to have a short story and you do in, you know, like three weeks, I'm going to start on it now. Wow. I, and whereas the person next to me, you know, not his fault, he's going to start out the night before it's due. But maybe he's a really good painter or maybe he's got other stuff, mm-hmm. you know, that he cares about. But So between 20 and 27, were you back in North Carolina? I was Carolina? in Raleigh, North Carolina. And what were you doing and what was that time like? It was, uh, you know, I don't think you ever went through this, but it's a time where you, you know, your friends and you and you're really creative and you think you're like super creative uh-huh. and you're the avant-garde in Raleigh, North Carolina. And and one by one they leave, and they go to New York or they go to Pittsburgh or they go, and then you're the only one left. And they come home, and then you're too busy to see them, you know, because uh. you're just so hurt and so kind of envious that they left and you didn't, and your life is just passing you by. And uh, yeah, so from twenty to twenty-seven, that's going to be like the time on my deathbed when I when want the time back that I was spent waiting for the check. When I look at my life and I look at time wasted, that's 
a period of time. But I don't know where else I would have been. Mm-hmm. You know, like if I'd moved to Chicago then, I wouldn't. I don't know that I would have. Maybe that's where I needed to be. But there's a lot of wasted time. I think a lot of, I mean, I don't know whether it's just a rationale for mistakes made, but the notion of things happening when they're supposed to happen, I I believe in. I believe in there being a window that opens up and you either, you know, I remember, uh, you know, like the time for me to move to New York, the window opened and I'm like, I got to go. Yeah. That window just opened. I got to go. And if I had not, then I would probably still be in Chicago or I still would have been in North Carolina. But when that window opens, you got to go. Yeah. Because, gosh, I know so many people that waited like decades after the window opened. And then yeah. it's like, then it's just too late. Well, and you'd had those seven years, too, to realize the the consequences of, of that, you know, of, of not accepting. Yeah. You know, yeah. But did, the, you, what, did you have a job then? Did you work or? Oh, gosh. I, I, I would find little, you know, jobs on construction sites or I'm the world's worst at applying for a job. Oh, yeah. My mother would say, do you think someone's going to knock on your door and offer you a job? And it's like, that's what I'm hoping. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and it was that thing where your rent's due in two days and you have $25 and uh, you know you're going to spend 10 of it on meth. Like... that night and then you got and you just feel like such a loser and oh yeah i remember i remember foregoing food because i knew i was going to need cigarettes and liquor yeah you know it's like eh, priorities oh yeah but in a way like i don't know that never left me that time never left me and i don't ever want it to in what sense in the sense that I feel like I feel so grateful uh, to be where I am now because I didn't really, uh, you know, I wasn't terribly promising, you know, for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I wished that I would have the life that I had now, but really, and I worked, you know, I mean, I wrote every day and yeah. I did, you know, but. I read a lot of biographies when I was young and especially biographies of artists. They all hung out with people who all turned out to be famous, Mm -hmm. right? And then I would look around me when I was 22 and I would think, how many of my friends are going to, you know what I mean? Like, come on, people. (laughs) Like like it was partly their responsibility too to – and I didn't realize that that just came later, yeah. right? That came later, like when I was in Chicago, and it was, you know, a lot of people that Amy was with at Second City, you know, mm-hmm. when we and when you moved to New York, and uh, you know, there were people that I met later who would go on to, right? You know, but no, you know, not. I mean, Cocteau. It might have happened when he was like twenty-two, but yeah, yeah. you know, people are on different timers. Yeah. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. 
Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in. Like, you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking, I might feel some pain at some point. But with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. Can't you tell my love's a So you go to Chicago to school, and how long are you in Chicago? I moved in 1984, and I left in 1990. Okay. And Amy just kind of followed you there, correct? Yeah, Amy came. I went to Second City to see a show, and I called Amy, and I said, there's a place up here that I think would be perfect for you. Because Amy was just the funniest waitress in Raleigh. Yeah. You know? And And it's interesting. I don't think she would have stayed the funniest. You know... When you're from a big family, you know, people often say, like, how is it, Wayno? What, what did you and Amy do different, you know? And all we we were just ambitious in a way. Mm-hmm. My brother Paul could have done, in comedy, could have done whatever he wanted to. Yeah. You know, anything, whatever he wanted to. But he's perfectly happy to live in Raleigh, North Carolina. He never... We brought him up to Chicago, and he stayed for two weeks and then went home. Yeah. And it wasn't like Chicago kick, kicked his ass. He just was wanted to be in Raleigh, North Carolina. And it's really hard for me to believe that if I hadn't said to Amy, this is place, Second City, you got to come up here, Amy would not have stayed, would not still be a waitress in Raleigh, North yeah. Carolina. There's no way right. that that would have happened. So um, but she came up uh, probably about a year and a half after I moved to Chicago. Yeah. So that was nice. Yeah, yeah. And with, and it it must have been nice, yeah, for you, you know, also for her, you know, because you guys pretty much worked together always, yeah? I mean, it, were you writing things for her? Were you yeah, collaborating we, with her? Yeah, we started in Chicago. We yeah. started doing things together. Uh, and, and then we, I moved to New York, and then did a play at theater for the new workshop. Mm-hmm. And it was somebody, Arnold April, this fellow in Chicago, was adapting a lot of the stories that turned into my first book. And then I wrote something uh, for Amy and Cheryl Trick, who was in Chicago. And then we did that, and then we did another play in New York, but we did it at La Mama. And then Amy moved up, and then we... And you, you know, did a bunch of plays, yeah. Were you writing things for performance before you started collaborating with Amy, or was it mostly yeah. pro stuff? I was writing things, you know, I started reading out loud. I read something out loud in class one day mm-hmm. in creative writing class. And then somebody said, oh, I'm having a happening at my loft. Sure. Oh, why don't you come and read? And And I said, okay. And then somebody said, oh, I'm having a happening at my loft in two weeks. But, you know, the first time I read out loud, I thought, this is what I wanted to do. Mm. I wanted to write my own stuff and read it out loud. That's How did I not know that? It never occurred to me that you could make a career out of it. Right. I never occurred because it's got to be the laziest form of show business there is, you know. 
Like, and, and people have said to me, we want you to memorize the stuff and then we'll turn it into, and it's like, no, I'm not going to do that. Memorize it and then look people in the eye and then get all dramatic and then say, and then somebody came to the door. <laughs> that's just, that's, that's not going to happen. <laughs> but I'm, I would go hear somebody read. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would, I mean, I can't understand people coming to hear me read, but I can understand me wanting to go hear other people read. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is a very niche thing. I mean, there's not, although it's happening more and more, you know, now uh, podcasts, live performances of podcasts are, and I know, you know, Karen Kilgariff, do you know Karen Kilgariff? Uh-oh. She's a very funny comedy writer and uh, she and her, uh, she has a, I, uh, she does a podcast with a partner called uh, My Favorite Murder and it's all about true oh, uh-huh, crime. Uh-huh. That's all she does now. That's just, they they do the podcast, they do live versions of it, and she's just like, yeah, I'm now a professional podcaster, and she just loves it. And it's it really is like kind of an interesting, you know, like radio plays, but, but they're being done right. live, you know? Um, it's, uh, you know, and I, I it, the podcast, I'm a latecomer to the podcasting world, and don't still don't know that much about it at all. Uh, and it still is mysterious to me that people listen to so many of them and they go see them be done live. I just am kind of, I still, I think having rel- gotten on a tell been on television at a relatively young age, I have a, a, a very old idea of like, wow, well, what's, what's legit and what's kind of, you know, Mickey Mouse and Rinky Dink and uh you know because I remember when people first start saying like do things for YouTube and I ugh, are you please I'm not doing and now it's like oh no shit yeah it's a <laughs> do things for YouTube it's a it's a legit you know people are gonna watch it and you're gonna make money from it and it's it's a perfectly viable way to entertain people um so yeah, it's, uh, it's 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 all different, but it is yeah. Well, there's no reason to know that you should read things aloud for a living, you know. Like, but when I was in school and in high school, and the teacher would you know give us a reading assignment, and then she knew okay, no one read it, so we would read it out loud in class. Yeah, I would always think, call on me, me. I want to read it. Let me, let me. Yeah, and and I could read it cold, and I don't know. I just thought. And I would listen to other people and I'd be like, can you try? You know, can you please <laughs> at least try? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I have a and I'm wretched voice. I mean, it sounds better with a cold, but it's not a, you know, when I was growing up, the people on the radio were like, you know, they had sonorous voices mm-hmm. and they, you never would have heard a voice like mine on the radio. Yeah. Um, not even on a commercial. You would have heard it. So it never occurred to me. It just, everything, I felt like everything was against me. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't mean to sound that in a persecuted way, but I mean, you know, my life's not remarkable. Uh, you know, the things that I write about aren't big things. I didn't, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't get shot by anybody. I didn't rescue anybody. I didn't, uh, you know, what one of the, Things that I, uh, you know, wrote recently was about going to 
visit my dad in the assisted living center that he's in. I mean, it's not a big, you know, so my material isn't, uh, and so I, so I am surprised. I'm in constant shock that mm-hmm. anybody might care. Well, um, you're, I, I mean, you're pretty funny. You're pretty funny. You're funny good people, stories. You know. I well, mean, yeah, but I mean, sure. You know, there's handsomer people too. But you're a very <laughs> handsome man. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, our time is limited here, so I got to move on to sort of like. I mean, you've lived, now you've lived all over the world. Was that always a, a part of, of what you were planning on doing? Always wanted to. Yeah? Yeah, I always thought did, if I had the chance, I'd live outside the United States. Was Did you and Hugh getting together, was that sort of like, that was, was that one of the things that sort of bound you two together? Was the desire to do that? Because it'd be tough to hook up with somebody that... Well, Hugh grew up living outside the United States, right. so his, he had just kind of returned to America. I see. And so, kind his of parents like, were uh, like, what do you call it? Uh, his dad was with the Foreign Service. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he was a word. diplomat. Yeah. And so Hugh grew up. I mean, Hugh and I were at the airport. We were flying to Frankfurt and Paris, and they called our flight. And I said, Hugh, we got to go. And he said, They're not going anywhere without us. And I said, You know, when your dad's the ambassador. And it's a plane just for your family. Yeah. They're not going anywhere without you. I said, but Lufthansa would be happy to leave your ass yeah. at Charles de Gaulle Airport. <laughs> oh, that's funny. He, but he grew up uh, in Africa. And they were, well, he was on the plane one time and somebody was grilling meat on the airplane. <laughs> They had like a little charcoal fire and they were grilling goat for their lunch on an airplane. Oh, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Dave Foley uh, from Kids in the Hall told me a story once about when his, his first kid was a baby and flying somewhere in Africa and the baby was fussing and he said arms just came over the seat behind him and took the baby from him. And then the baby just got passed all the way around the airplane. Just different people holding the baby, talking. And the baby calmed down because it just was being passed around the plane. Like, you know, I don't know. You know, like somebody when they win an Oscar, you know, <laughs> everyone wants to hold it. So That must be your dream as a parent, though, if you've got a colicky baby on a plane. Because at least people would stop looking at you. Yeah. You know, and saying, shut that damn kid off. Yeah. But, and now it's not you anymore. Well, it's and the it's, person behind you. it's also like, it's such a beautiful difference of responsibility, mm-hmm. you know, whereas, you know, you have a crying baby on a plane and people act like you're an asshole. Yeah. As if this isn't how people are made and as if this isn't right. just, you know, as, as much of a part of reality as there being dirt and stones and trees and sky. Whereas here, it's like, no, it's all our, it's it's a collective responsibility to, to soothe this child, which is, you know. Well, plus, I like that as a parent, you know, I mean, you just would never see that in the United oh, States. No. It's no. like, give your baby to that man four rows back with one eye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, he said it was a little nerve wracking, but it meant, you know, like, oh, well, really, what's going to happen, you know? Uh, <laughs> well, now, are you... You're, you, you've lived in Paris and now in England mm-hmm. 
and uh, and now you're back in New York. And you say Germany. Is there any other I'd places? I'd love to live in Germany. Yeah. I don't want to live in a hot place. Yeah. And I don't want to live in, uh, gee, uh, that's pretty much it. I don't want to live in a hot place. Like I'd be happy to move to uh, any of the Scandinavian countries yeah. I'd move to. But, you know, it's going to be something everywhere. It's going to be something. Like in, in England, it's women putting fingernail polish on on planes, mm. on, on trains. I can't stand it. Yeah. And every time you get on a train. Is it the smell, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. It goes right to my central nervous yeah, system. Yeah, I don't like that smell either. And if you say to somebody, do you mind? Like the windows don't open. They don't, they're always like, what's your problem? Yeah. It's, it should be understood yeah. that you don't put. And in France, it's people making out everywhere you go. <laughs> and it sickens me. Yeah. <laughs> I would rather see somebody defecating than kissing. Really? Oh, yeah. I think someone should put you to the test on that, just for like about five days straight. Just where you have to look at people's shitting just every hour. You know what? I feel really confident that would not change my tune. <laughs> I really wouldn't. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> um, do you have, let me ask you. Yeah. On your show, do you have guests on who are sick a lot? Um, eh, not, not, not often. I mean, and they, you know, they very rarely talk about it if they, okay. if they are. Yeah, yeah. Because I have to go on TV tonight. Yeah. So. Where are you going? Uh, Jimmy Kimmel. Uh-huh. Um, you'll be fine. But I can blow my nose and stuff, and it's okay. Yeah, why not? All right. Yeah, it's just Kimmel. <laughs> he's actually, I, he's a friend of mine, and he's a, a lovely person, so he will. I met him a couple times. I was on his show a few times. And yeah. I have to say, he was absolutely lovely. He's he's amazing. He's, he's actually, uh, as for being a talk show host, I mean, it's a very strange thing. To be, and it, and it, I think that it has, um, there's a price to be paid for what I call the commodification of the self. That if you make your personality a product, uh -huh. that, and that, that there's no sort of barrier of artifice that you can hide behind or protect something that's you, I think it's very dangerous, and that, and that there's something to be lost. And he is as nice and normal and generous and kind and considerate as a person can be that is a fucking talk show host. And it always makes me feel like there's bodies buried somewhere because there has to be <laughs> some sort of off-gassing that's happening to, you know, for that balance. Because he just, you know, the first time he invited me to, uh, he has a house down in you know, Orange County on the beach. And it's just, it's a normal house. It's not, you know, and it's not even really on the beach. It's just on a block of all those kind of row houses in California that are in Venice or wherever. And there was about maybe 25 people there. And it was, uh, it was me and the kids, because uh, my ex-wife was out of town. And the rest was just his family. And he cooked for everybody. And he had been like up all night, like making chicken skewers and marinating them, which is the sort of thing I would do. So I already was like, I already felt, but I was like, that's like, 
I don't see... I don't see a lot of other late-night hosts staying up late at night skewering chicken for their 25 relatives that they're having over to cook. So he's a pretty great guy. I mean, you know, Conan's great, too. But anyway, uh, <laughs> no, the people people are sick on TV. I've, you know, I have never over illness missed a day of television and it's crazy to me. Like, and I, I would now, but I've never, I haven't been sick. Oh. But like, I used to do. There were days when I did the the late night show back in the '90s with like a fever, like literally, like a hundred and one fever, sitting next to people, feeling like, well, I can't not do this. And now, of course, it's like, oh yeah, it's. I think it would have been fine if I had said, I have a hundred and one degree fever, and I don't really want to give it to David Hasselhoff, whatever I have. Um, so, yeah, you can be sick tonight. But I, it's different. Like for, uh, you know, when I go on tour, you know, you often get a flu or something like that. And I, I got a complaint letter. This woman said, you blew your nose all night. Well, yeah, I was there. Yeah. You know, I didn't cancel. Right. And I was there. And, yeah, I had to blow my nose yeah. a lot. But I got a gastrointestinal virus. And I thought... Because I always stand up when I read. And I was so afraid I was going to shit in my pants yeah. that I sat down on a stool. Yeah. And I was afraid to get up <laughs> from that stool. Because you hear about people. People do shit sure. themselves in the, their the pants on stage. Sure, I mean, sure. it happens. Right. But can you imagine? Oh, boy. I would just, I would just immediately go and kill myself. <laughs> I think you'd be okay. And I would set myself on fire. I would like set my – I would start – I would set my pants on fire, yeah, and then I would kill myself. So, no one had to clean up the mess. So, hopefully, the whole stage could burn—not the whole theater, right, but right. the stage—and I could burn, and so there wouldn't be anybody having to, you know. You would you just immolate, and it'd yeah. just be like a slight, some light ash, yeah, that like a you know, a clown would come up and sweep, <laughs> sweep up like a spotlight, <laughs> an Emmett Kelly clown. <laughs> Well, what do you? What's what's in the future for you? I mean, what do you? You know, what are you uh, doing? Aside from moving to Germany, is there uh, something you know that you that you're not doing that you wish you were doing? Or uh, no, I can't think of anything. Yeah. I mean, I just you know I go on these tours and I write new stuff, and you know I write for the New Yorker and uh, and I have a radio show in the in England and that's I don't know I never saw beyond any of that yeah um, yeah I don't need anything more have you are, are are you a happy person I think so yeah I have mean, you we, always been I mean were there periods of your life I mean aside from like you know the 20 to 27 I mean did you ever struggle with any kind of depression or no 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 I'm a pretty cheerful person mm-hmm are you, you're cheerful aren't you I, I I mean I'm a I definitely suffer from depression and I've been medicated for it for oh. many many years yeah yeah no it's uh it no no I'm oh. I'm not a happy person and in fact uh, I often uh, suffer from a kind of anhedonia uh, you know just did not... you do the hilarious world of depression I did oh I did I was I was on an episode of that and that's actually talking about depression. That particular podcast and just different public comments about depression are, I, I, I was always loathe 
to be a person who would say, well, I'm on television, so I'm going to talk about something I've been through so that other people can feel. Uh, it always just seems so self-serving when I would hear people do it. But it does matter. There are people just from doing John Most podcast of, of the hilarious world of depression, people stopping me and saying how meaningful it was to them and that they went into therapy because of it after being in denial. And, and so it is, it's, I, you know, it is something that's very important to me because it is, I mean, this, this podcast to me is meant to be therapeutic kind of talk is meant to be uh, examination and introspection um, because it's something that I have been devoting myself to as a, you know, not even really a sideline, like something that I've really been actively trying throughout my life to make things better and to kind of, uh, to rid myself of that anhedonia, that, that, that feeling like, I'm not sure I'll ever really enjoy stuff. I know other people do. I hear them talk about it. I hear them, you know, I look at a sunset and I think, eh, yeah, it's pretty, but I don't, and I, for all I know, I'm, it's a, it's a trick that like, I'm, that I feel it just as much as anybody else. And I just don't trust it. Huh. Um, but yeah, no, it's, I, it's hard, you know, happiness or contentment is something that I definitely, uh, have had to work at and also, uh, am unlucky in that my brain chemistry makes it difficult for me to experience it hmm. and to access it. Um, so yeah, you're lucky. God damn it. Did you get your shirt at 45 RPM? The uh, Japanese store? No. No. Where is this? Uh, somewhere online. I can't remember the name of the company. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, cause the covered buttons is what yes, made yes. me think. I don't have a cut covered button. It's a, it's a, it's some. I just saw them online, or I got an email for them. I don't remember. Mm. I, I'd have to look at the tag to remember what the name was. Did you ever hear that as a pickup line? Um, someone told me, you go to a bar and you you reached, and you would never do this now. You reach to the back of a woman's neck and you look at the tag, it, at the you know in her dress, and you say, "Oh, it does say made in heaven." Who on earth would that work on? I don't know. <laughs> Another one is you take a sugar packet and you go up to someone and you say, excuse me, miss, I believe you dropped your name tag. <laughs> yes, uh, that's me. <laughs> sugar packet Richardson. <laughs> uh, well, now... Do people ask you for advice? Like, do they, you know, like, do you get young people saying to you, like, you know? Writing advice, you know, how do you, yeah, you know, writing advice. And I, you know, gee, I mean, you know, if you do everything, if you do something every day, you're going to get better at it. Yeah. But that's the only way you're going to get better. Yeah. Is to do it every day. Yeah. And I think what's harder now is... People want something immediate. They want immediately to be validated or immediate to be congratulated or immediately to get feedback. And there's a lot to be said for keeping stuff to yourself, mm -hmm. you know, before you're ready to be seen. Because otherwise people are going to be like, oh, I, you know, 
they're just going to be weary of you before you even, you know, then when you've got something decent, they're already going to be tired of you. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's hard now because it is, it's, yeah, it's the social media. Uh, it's, you know, I mean, you, there are, I mean, early on in social media, there were, you know, you see it with Reddit or 4chan. <laughs> There's, I, there are times when I feel like, yeah, there are, there were sort of like, some people that maybe should maybe should have stayed you know especially when it's like you know hate groups like you're in an you're feeling isolated in your hatred and and bigotry somewhere and then like oh no uh, there's a whole community of us like yeah that's maybe not the best thing you know that's not like it's not you know in i think for every well it's probably mostly healthy it's mostly healthy in that in that it there are people that feel isolated for a reason that they should not feel isolated uh, and then they find a sense of community online you know i gotta say i don't know anything about it like yeah. i don't never seen what facebook looks like i've never seen what twitter looks like you know a couple of people i follow on instagram well, i have an instagram page i've never seen it yeah uh, no interest at all no just none yeah yeah are you on the internet much? Uh, gee, compared to most people, probably not. Not really. Yeah. Just I look reading. I heard about Reddit, and then I went to it one time, and I thought, I, I don't know, it just seemed too big or something, and yeah. so I just didn't. Yeah. It's not. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm ten years younger than you, and there's still like that. There are parts of it that I just didn't. I feel like, oh no, that's. It's I, I don't know how to navigate that. I don't like to think of the world, you know, like when you look at comment sections on anything, right? And how quickly it degenerates and how quickly it becomes ugly. Mm -hmm. um, I don't like, to, I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to think of the world like that. Yeah. I don't want to be, I don't know, I want to be reminded of it. I don't want to, it's ugly to me. Mm -hmm. And and I know it exists, but I don't know. I really like to ignore it. Yeah. Well, there. I I will tell you that as someone who's fairly active on Twitter and just Twitter, I I I was on Facebook originally, and then I just I it was a the the lack of character limits. Like Twitter has a character limit, so uh -huh. it's what's what's fun and what originally for me as someone with, well, as a joke writer, as a, someone with lots of disconnected short little ideas, um, it was, especially when it was 140 characters. And I really found it fun to try and get a joke that might have three different funny things in it, like a, like a funny image, a word play, and then just a punchline, all but within 140 characters and it is has been great for my other writing in terms of just economy it really you know there's no <laughs> gesundheit uh, it's there's no there's no room for excess in it you know you right. have to really and and it, and that's a, always a helpful thing i think for writing you know um but i also too it's also been very good for uh my life. I've made a lot of friends hmm. and I, and I do, 
it, it can definitely be like a conversation and an outreach to people and an ongoing conversation with funny people of a similar ilk to me, some of whom I've never met face-to-face. And then there is also that really, really ugly shit of where there are just people, just shit posters that like to say shitty stuff about people and like to say, you know, like people, like, you know, when I was going through a divorce saying kind of shitty things about, about me at a very vulnerable time when I have, you know, my family's in turmoil. And that's like a reason to sort of kick me around a little bit. And I just, you know, it's just like, wow, that's really, it's the anonymity, it's the safety of it. And it's just, if you're mean, it's a great place to be. Yeah. But but it's also, you know, it can be a great place to be if you're sharing and caring and, and you know, want to spread a little love. It can be great. So, so get on Twitter, really. <laughs> you know, stop picking up trash. Start getting on Twitter. Oh, God, pick up trash. I should pick up no, trash. No, I'm going to get on litter. That's what I'm going to get on. <laughs> oh, man. I forgot my snare drum and cymbal. <laughs> Damn it. Well, David, this has been a joy. For me, too, Andy. And uh, it's it's great to just catch up. And uh, and I'm excited about you guys coming back to New York. I mean, you know, I'll uh, there's a lot more likelihood of us hanging out there than there is in England. I would love Paris. to. Yeah. And we, we, uh, gee, were you in Chelsea? You were on like 20, were you on 6th Avenue, like yeah. 26th six and Street? Eight, six between 17th and 18th, and then we were on 23rd between 6th and 7th. Because I would go to those Christmas parties. Yes. That you would have. Yeah, and New Year's Eve parties. Yeah. Yeah. And those were always so much fun. And then, yeah, it's nice. I mean, it's nice. Me. I mean, our, Really, we have a really great apartment now. It's great. Yeah, it's still a great place to be, New York City, and it's great to uh, great to see you and Hugh and um, and thank you for coming. And don't forget to check out David Sedaris's masterclass on writing and humor at masterclass.com. And thank you all for listening to this episode of the Three Questions. And we will check in with you next time. The Three Questions with Andy Richter is a Team Coco and Earwolf production. It's produced by me, Kevin Bartelt, executive produced by Adam Sachs and Jeff Ross at Team Coco, and Chris Bannon and Colin Anderson at Earwolf. Our supervising producer is Aaron Blair, associate produced by Jen Samples and Galitza Hayek, and engineered by Will Becton. And if you haven't already, make sure to rate and review The Three Questions with Andy Richter on Apple Podcasts. This has been a Team Coco production in association with Earwolf. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at tmobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at tmobile.com.